Good day, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Mineta, former vice president of student affairs at Duke University for 18 years. And prior to that, the AVP for campus services at the University of Pennsylvania. He also worked at the University of Michigan and the University of Rochester, amongst other institutions. Over the years, Larry and I have had many conversations about student life and the role that athletics plays on a residential campus like Duke or Penn. Of course, Duke is famous for Krzyzewskiville, where students are known to literally camp out overnight for tickets, and all, all in the hopes of creating a frenetic home court advantage for both men's and women's basketball. But there are more intricate details that go into navigating the balancing act between student life and big time college sports and that is where we will begin our conversation today. So Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and tell us what attracted you to working in student life. I know your roots are in housing. Well, they, you know, my, I was a freshman in 1968 and, and I could probably just stop there and say, if you could survive being a college freshman <laughs> in the tumultuous years of 1968, you know, everything from the Chicago convention, the Vietnam, war, you know, activism, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And, you know, it was just a volatile time to be at college. And I came in to the University of Massachusetts as a freshman, completely clueless and got swept up in campus life and campus activism. And, you know, the roots of my real interest in staying on a college campus were, you know, being part of a residential college and experimental kind of community really beginning to see the power of, of campus life as a place for social issues to be explored and advanced. And by the time my junior year came around and the Kent State killings, and I was just pretty much locked in. And at that point, I realized that, you know, working on a campus was my future and being a change maker to the experience of a college and university campus just felt right to me, yeah. to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> and you never left. I mean, never left. Never I've, left. I've been on a college campus since 1968. So it's a good 52 years, 53 wow. years now. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So the last 20 years or so on campus housing has been designed differently for the changing social and educational desires of students and also the campuses themselves. There is more co social common space. The dining areas have morphed into the cuisine kind of approach and the accommodations are suite style. Give us a sense of what those changes have meant to the residential experience for all students. Well, you, you noted that I spent the first 20 years of my life working in campus housing. And that's because when I graduated with my master's from Springfield College and you began looking for jobs in the early seventies, you know, residence halls were the places where jobs were available. They were hiring more live-in hall directors and roles like that. And, and my residential experience had been extraordinarily formative for me. So I, I looked for a job and started as a hall director at the University of Bridgeport and worked my way eventually to being the, the director of residence life back at my alma mater, UMass. Um, I would say there's been a tension for decades between the communal and the consumer. And they don't necessarily have to be two ends of a spectrum, but the pendulum swings back and forth. And certainly for institutions, institutions that are enrollment challenged, you know, the consumer may win out and the tendency to build 
um, facilities that appeal to consumer interests, more single rooms, more suites, um, avant-garde cuisine, uh, anything that's going to be an attractor for uh, enrollees and, and for retaining students becomes of a higher priority. For institutions that are not enrollment challenged, and I have the privilege for the last 30 years of being at Penn and Duke, um, we, we've had the luxury, or, or at least the sort of romantic history of being able to stay consistent with our communal preference, and that is the fostering of communities and the creation of environments that engage students and that um, create opportunities for faculty and students to sort of bump together. Um, you know, at Duke, you know, we chose not to build, you know, very fancy residences. Most of the buildings we built are traditional double-loaded corridors. Um, we retained a first-year campus and all first-year students were obligated to live on the first-year campus. And, you know, they were very traditional kinds of residential experiences. Um, and they were the same for you know, the average student and the elite athlete. I know we'll talk more about that perhaps later. Um, but, um, but I think that tension is something that is far more visible in, in those institutions that have built, you know, elaborate uh, lazy, lazy rivers in their, their athletic facilities or have gone towards mostly sweet style or created, you know, really spacious um, play areas and the like. Um, you know, frankly, are doing so because of, the, of their need to survive. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, I've been in this business for over 50 years, and we still don't know whether a uh, all first year campus or integrated by classes makes the most sense. Hmm. The research has not really revealed conclusively what form of a residential experience um, is better. So you'll still see every model imaginable. But I think at its core, most campuses still want students to have sort of that accidental offense of bumping into students who are different from themselves. In the dining, they do want to sit and stick, not just a grab and go kind of environment. Mm -hmm. um, but we're faced with every kind of uh, student consumer there may be and dietary preferences kick in and um, the need for singles for students who have um, health matters or mental health issues. and you know, that all of those things have played out over the last decades. I can remember um, somebody telling me back in the early to mid 90s that uh, campuses should no longer view students as students, but they should view them as customers. Mm -hmm. Do you remember hearing that? that in oh, yeah. yeah. I, I remember hearing that and as a young professional getting nauseous because <laughs> it violated my premise that, you know, we're educators and we're dealing with students as adults. And then as I got older, I began to realize that there is not a, a, a you know, necessarily, um, you know, violation to understand that students are both learners and consumers. You know, they and their families are paying enormous dollars, both at public and private institutions, and they have every right to be treated as customers. That doesn't preclude treating them as learners. That doesn't mean that even as a customer, we don't get to say these are the boundaries. Even as a customer, the faculty, faculty still decide what your graduation requirements will be. Mm -hmm. And, and you, know, we, we can, you know, one, I can remember one of the last policy changes I made it to, I began to look at the data on first year roommates and discovered that 60% of the first year students were rooming with somebody they knew previously. Hmm. 
And not surprisingly, those 60% were overrepresented by white wealthy students. And I said, you know, privilege was enabling students who were already, you know, aware of others who were in like socioeconomic levels to, to room with each other. And I said, this is not a good thing. And I brought to the president, provost attention, others, you know, this and said, I really want to eliminate the opportunity for students to choose a roommate. I want to go back to 100% random assignment. And to my delight, they said, absolutely, it makes great sense. So the last real policy change I made, which got me a stint on Scott Simon and, and NPR, um, was to eliminate the ability to choose a roommate. And that's an example of where that, that's, a, that's a communal decision that we made. That doesn't mean that I'm disregarding the students as consumers, but there are some consumer attributes that we didn't feel were best for them in their educational journey. Was that true all the way through all four years or just the first year? Just the first year. I, okay. didn't, you know, I didn't feel like we needed to be that controlling, but I thought, and, and the evidence was random roommates stayed together longer mm. than uh, assigned roommates. Interesting thing, I, I, longer than uh, roommates that were chosen by, by themselves. If you chose your roommate, chances are you were not going to room with that person later, whereas the random roommate lasted a year longer. Interesting. It's very interesting. You yeah. know, those friendships that were pe with people whom you didn't know were actually more persistent than cosmetic friendships that you know just seemed convenient. I have heard studies that said the first five or six people that you meet, whether you're standing in line for registration, I know that's old, or waiting in the cafeteria or whatever, whoever you meet, those are the people you oftentimes are connected to your entire time on campus. I think that's phenomenal. That's really- I think, I think you're, yeah, I've seen some similar data. The lifelong friendships are not with the people you already knew when you arrived at college. It's with the strangers you met. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So mm -hmm. shifting to looking at NCAA rules. Now we know the rules don't allow athletes to live wholly together in separate buildings, but we've come up with a lot of, uh, shall we say, creative housing arrangements and buildings developed over the year that allow for athlete only floors, wings, et cetera. What observations and or concerns do you have about the proliferation of what I call gated housing communities available only to athletes? Well, I'm, I'm really well aware of the institutions that, you know, from my perspective, are gaming the system, you know, creating these um, elaborate, you know, opulent residence halls and arguing that only 50% of the residents are athletes so that they just fit within NCAA rules and the other 50, but the other 50% may be, you know, uh, you know, captains or managers. You know, I think managers, they found ways of doing that. And I, and, 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 you know, let me, you know, I, as a retiree, I can decry all of that. I, <laughs> I, 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 de I decried it when I was working as well. And I just think that that's a, you know, that I, I blame presidents and provosts and others in leadership roles who just basically have turned their eye and allowed athletic departments to game a system like that. I'm really proud of the fact that that didn't happen at Duke. And I will say, I've had direct conversations with some of the celebrity coaches you are well aware of, who, you know, with whom I've had good conversations about what can we do to ensure the safety of, of elite athletes, for instance. Right. Um, and I mentioned at Duke, all first year students live on the first year campus, a very traditional double loaded corridor gang bathroom kind of environment. And so do all of our elite athletes. Do we have some private rooms with a little more security? Absolutely. And is that justified for students for whom, 
you know, people are walking around with cameras and would be very content to get some, you know, photos that are inappropriate. So we've, we've found a way to accommodate, um, you know, what I considered safety, which is to me the highest priority for those elite athletes, but they're living among all the other students in the same residence halls. In the upper class areas, we found some, uh, you know, sort of, we do have some suites and we designated some suites again for those purposes, but they're all scattered throughout communities where, where other students are living in identical, identical kinds of conditions. And I give lots of credit to the coaches and AD team at, at Duke for understanding that there is a, a way to both satisfy the needs for security for the athletes, um, but also give them as much of the traditional student experience as, as is possible. You know, a period where that experience is declining pretty rapidly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know I, I can keep my head up and my chin up and say, I think Duke does the right thing. What happens uh, uh, anecdotally after the first year? Do, do, they, do the athletes and the non-athletes kind of go their separate ways at Duke or how does that work housing wise? Yeah, I mean, certainly the athlete, the elite athletes tend to, you know, cluster together. I mean, I think there's, a, you know, there's, they're still, given their schedules, given early morning practices, a lot of the athletes in the, in the revenue sports probably tend to room with each other. Um, and then, and then, you know, we, we keep them on campus at least two years, um, which is still pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, often, often they'll then go off campus at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, but and I think that's, that's something else we can talk about, which is just the changing nature of, you know, the student athlete experience, which has become much more athlete student. Yes. That's not a unique feature in, you know, at the elite athletic institutions like Duke. I mean, even at the, at the Ivies, which are non, you know, scholarship allegedly kinds of programs, some of the, some of the same expectations of year round practices and year round um, care, I think have, you know, if I'm an old romantic, I would say have, have adversely affected the opportunity for athletes to be truly part of the overall student culture. I don't blame the athlete. I don't even know that I can blame the athletic programs. It's just part of the, the way the system has evolved over the last years. Well, and that leads me into my, my question. A part of the housing life, the student life on campus are the extracurricular activities that, that, that develop and build friendships and soft skills, including leadership, cooperative behaviors, et cetera. What has been your experience been when it comes to athletes being involved in any or all of these leadership, these activities on campus? Well, there are always exceptions and I can think of and name extraordinary athletes who are now well-known, you know, whether they're in the NFL or NBA or playing at the WNBA, who were student leaders, who, who found a way to, you know, uh, make time, you know, given a, a, an extraordinarily difficult schedule to participate. Um, overall, probably fewer than I would like. And I think the time, the demands on conditioning, the demands on practices, the introduction of year round training table. I mean, when I was at Michigan in the seventies, you know, training table for, was for when you were in season and predominantly the night before the contest. Now training table is a year round uh, everyday kind of occurrence as a way to keep the athletes sort of engaged in their community of, of, uh, of teammates and, and, and co-players. Um, I wish that weren't so. I would prefer that the athletes had time in their lives 
to you know join a film group or be part of a student leadership organization or get involved in a you know women's leadership activity and i wish it weren't the exception but but if i'm to be honest i just think that we've watched that cycle move heavily into a more sort of isolationist kind of experience for the athlete student yeah, and actually, I've done some research into this this explosion of um, um, athletic villages that you know I just read this morning about Auburn and their ninety one point two million dollar football um, uh, village that will have yes your standard weight rooms and locker rooms and other things, but it will also have a barber shop, two recording studios, and a flight simulator. And again, the only people who have access to that are the athletes. So it only right. further sends to marginalize and isolate an athlete population that doesn't get a chance to interact with the rest of campus. And my recollection is Kansas and Kentucky both built these elaborate residence halls as well, I remember saying. Yes, and that's right. You know, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say, um, I don't support those. Um, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I don't have the influence to you know, discourage the, the individual campuses from doing that. I, I really do think this speaks to, you know, in institutional leadership. Um, and, you know, th those things don't happen without the approval of senior leaders at the institution outside of athletics and boards of trustees or regents. And, you know, maybe the, the subtext here is the abandonment of, of, of leadership, you know, at those levels. Um, you know, again, I'm, 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 I can proudly say that I was very supported at Duke by our president, provost, and board of trustees for limiting, you know, the degree to which we would isolate athletes. And, and I want to say candidly, and the athletic department didn't ask for mm. isolation. They asked for accommodation. And there's a difference between a reasonable accommodation that recognizes the, the unique nature of, you know, highly visible and um, you know, challenge and athletes who are really challenged to be able to complete their coursework and 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 I had no problem with that. I always found that I had great opportunity and, and reasonable conversations that led to good solutions. But I feel like I don't know, maybe we're the outlier, and the rest of American higher ed has just abandoned their role and responsibility in constraining excessive isolation, which I would love to see rolled back. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, you know, as you've probably heard, a huge issue looming on the horizon is athletes' names, images, and likenesses. I'm envisioning an athletic residence hall turning into a floor of social media strategists trying to up one another and creating the most watched TikTok video. I'm sure we have influencers on campuses now. How do you think it might change the living environment and the amenities required for students and athletes who want to stay on in-campus housing? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is, as, as you just alluded, the, the, the notion of, of entrepreneurialism on campus has also grown exponentially. Um, you know, gone are the days when some student would have a you know, secret barbershop or you know, <laughs> run, a, run a small you know, tutoring service out of their residence room. Business. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got chefs that are doing you know, home delivery of food products and people who are starting, um, you know, SaaS-related tech businesses and developing apps and, you know, and our TikTok and Instagram and other kinds of influencers. And I've seen them at every campus I've been at, although, you know, the pace of it now is just, 
you know, beyond belief. I don't know that the athletes themselves actually could compete just given the time demands on them with some of the students who are, you know, you know, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook influencers who pretty much are doing this full time. So I'm less worried about the athletes um, trying to sort of game that system or leverage it or be excessive about it. I also don't think institutions have to necessarily play the game. I mean, if I were in a position of influence, I don't know that I would be building TikTok studios in, in every you know, residence hall. Frankly, in this day and age, a, you know, a good uh, smart camera phone will, will do all you need to do. Um, I, I do think what it, what it suggests for both the athletes and, and, and everyone else is sort of institutional focus on addictive behaviors institutional focus on sort of ethical guidance in, the, in these matters. I'm, I'm thrilled that the athletes can benefit from um, the sale of their own likeness. I think they, I, I'm not a fan of salary for participation as an athlete. I absolutely believe if the athlete's image is, is used by the institution for financial gain, the athlete ought to benefit from that as well. Right. Um, but I think it's I think it was always my responsibility as an administrator to ensure the development of environments that encourage learning. That That's always been my mantra is, you know, I built a lot of buildings in my time. And for me, the, the quality of the buildings that succeeded are buildings that naturally brought people together, not separated them, yeah. Yeah. that encouraged bumping in the paths that had multi-use versus singular dedicated use, where the outside was as important as the inside in terms of, of engagement. Um, I use the old athletic term of accidental offense, and I believe that good environments stimulate and foster accidental offense, meaning you know, contact with others who may be different from yourself, um, opportunities for groups and individuals. And, and I think maybe those environments are more important than ever under these conditions where independent entrepreneurialism and the sort of lone ranger of, um, you know, of, of, of entrepreneur and business maker seems to be the more cherished um, uh, winner. I, I like the idea of fostering community and, yeah. and double, double down, doubling down on communal interactions and giving athletes and non-athletes alike the opportunity, even if it's the 10 minutes that the athlete is walking over to the athletics complex to engage, you know, engage with somebody who may be outside of their normal circle of contacts. Yeah, I really agree with you on that. And I think coming out of COVID-19, you know, that's what that's what students are missing from their mm -hmm. their experience on campus. And I know the athletes are missing having their fellow mm -hmm. students there. So I think it's to our advantage to try to find ways to get them back together again to reinvent that residential experience. I think athletic directors and coaches have misinterpreted, you know, some, not all, but some athletes request for accommodation from that consumer lens. Hmm. When if they just thought about it from that communal lens, what the athletes may be asking for is, is you know, a way to experience the campus without having to sacrifice what it takes for them to be elite athletes. Hmm. Interesting. And if yeah. I were advising an athletic director or department, I would say, don't jump to the conclusion that what they want is a private barbershop or, a, you know, a, you know, some kind of fancy service that others wouldn't access. When may, maybe what they want is, 
you know, really the opportunity to be safe, you know, and recognizing that and a way in which they can actually be part of the community without having to sacrifice their commitment to their sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think if they began there, they, the answers might be a little different than the palaces that have been built. Yeah, you might be right. Let's, let's go to one last topic, which is very important to both you and I. We know that Duke athletes, like other athletes and high profile institutions are very visible in terms of their presence on campus. Are senior leaders able to or even want to control the dynamic when athletes become vocal activists or advocates for social and racial justice issues? And, and how should senior leaders prepare to manage unrest on campus when high profile athletes are involved? Well, I think, I think anything anyone would do to try to um, prevent it would be a huge mistake for two reasons. One, I think the athletes' voices are critical and the fact that they may be influencers should be respected. Now, the second is any effort I've ever seen to suppress anyone's voice has just gen generally resulted in a much larger voice and, uh, and, and broader engagement. And certainly in this day and age of you know, instantaneous communications, the effort to suppress a voice is going to be far louder and far more negatively powerful than the effort to embrace it and, and, and permit it. Um, I, I think we've seen really wonderful things happen in the last couple of years in the Black Lives Matter movement because um, athletes have spoken up and have said um, you know, we, we may not compete unless, you know, there's better attention. Um, but, but I would feel the same way of a member of a residence hall community or a, a group of art, art students or, or a group of, of students who share a political science major. Um, I don't see why we would not respect and honor athletes' voices any more than we would any other community. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, athletes, you know, we could have a longer conversation on the, on the um, ex exploitation of athletes, mm -hmm. which has gone on for forever for time immemorial. And if, if embracing and, and respecting and celebrating athlete voices has some counterbalancing to a long period of exploitation, so be it. I think athletes have earned the right to speak up. And I think institutions have an obligation to listen and to respect and to honor the athletes by being attentive. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, Dr. Larry Mineta, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a great discussion, lots to chew on and think about. Um, really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure, Karen, and thanks for having me.